It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up. Speak up. Say something. Do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Uh, I've apologized for the things that we got wrong. Uh, during the pandemic, and I I repeat those apologies. But uh, with great respect, I'm going to have to ask you to wait until the conclusion of the the investigation. You have said that you'll let us know if there have been any more fines. We already know that you have been fined once. Have you been fined since then? No, and I'm sure that uh, there will be, um, you know, that, that will not remain... Uh, you know, secret. So, look. Do you assume, expect to be as, fined as, again? You face I, I have no idea. I have no idea. And I, I will uh, make sure that as soon as I'm able uh, to say something on the conclusion of the investigation, that, that you have a lot, a lot more from me about this. But I just want a matters. straight answer. You're, you're an honest speaker. Yes, and uh, I do my best to represent faithfully and accurately what I believe. And sometimes it's controversial, and sometimes it offends people, but that's what I do. Sometimes people say you lie, Prime Minister. If you're talking about uh, the statements I made in the House of Commons, I was inadvertently, uh, I was wrong, and I've apologised for that. All right, Sandy Rios with you this morning. That is a little clip from Good Morning Britain, and that is the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson. And we played that just to kind of give you an idea that perhaps this is not the only place in the universe where there is a hostile press uh, and a defending uh, politician. And also because I wanted our guests to feel at home. (laughs) (laughs) My next guest has been on with me a lot of times, but she is in studio with me today. She is in the United States. Her name is Katie Hopkins. She is a British conservative media personality. She is a newspaper columnist. I think she was the number one on the Daily Mail, most read Uh, She is a radio host. Uh, She is very controversial because Katie speaks her mind. You've seen her here on Tucker Carlson, on Fox News, the BBC, the Sean Hannity Show. She's been all over because uh, Katie cares a great deal about what happens here in the United States. And the parallels between Boris Johnson early on and Donald Trump were just incredible. She actually came to the States uh, to to, uh, campaign for Donald Trump. Uh, before, uh, that was 2020, Katie? Yes. 2016. This is 2016. So, so um, and indeed 2020. So, all right. Yeah, so, <laughs> I feel like I've been on the road forever. Yeah, you, well, you have. I know. Oh, some of us are the benefactors of that. So <laughs> it's really good to see you. Now, um, what brings you back? Uh, the last time we talked, you had trouble getting into the United States because of the COVID restrictions, right? Absolutely. Yes. And, and that's still the case. It remains the case today that British people are not allowed to come to the United States of America if they are unvaccinated. So unvaccinated Brits are still banned from the United States of America. And and no one seems to really know that because we just assume this nonsense would have passed by now, but it has not. Well, you know, I shouldn't be surprised. I can't, uh, as you know, my son is in Canada, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. 
and I can't, I'll never see my kids. I, I cannot go to British Columbia. Um, I can't, and I won't be able to. No. It's very sad. It's very sad. It, it's really yeah. sad, and this is the story and the heartbreak for so many. And, and whilst I don't advise people to do as I have done, um, I, last time I came into America, I broke in. I mean, I did it the only way that one might do it under the Biden administration. And I broke in via Mexico, which sounds like a joke, but actually yeah. is, is absolutely true. No, I, I, I know it's not a joke. It's ridiculous. They're it's, letting criminals, they're letting people from all over the world, not just Central America and Mexico, but, you know, Eastern Europe and, and people on terrorist watch lists. There's just, and people with COVID, they're getting ready to lift the COVID restrictions on the border, Katie. So, and, and so that's what I did. There was a mechanism by which you could spend 15 days in Mexico, cleanse yourself of being British in that way, <laughs> and then make a break for America. And then that's what I used to do. Um, and each time, of course, it involves spending two and a half weeks on my own in Mexico. But I, I truly believe, you know, well, A, the time for asking permission is over. And I also believe we have no, um, I personally believe I have no need to abide by rules made up by people that make no sense at all. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I believe yes. in the rule of law. I believe in, you know, the law leads the way and police have to enforce that. But when it comes to arbitrary rules made up to keep families apart, it's just something I can't, I can't endure. So I just break my way in, which is why I'm, I'm problematic for a number of authorities. Well, it is, you know, it, it is true. When we talk about the breakdown of law and order, it also applies to us because of ridiculous restrictions. You know, I think of uh, of the first thing that comes to my mind is Nazi Germany when you're hiding Jews who will be killed if you say, yes, they're in my house, you know. And so there are times when you when reasonable people have to uh, have to live in a different way than they would normally live. I think that's right. I think there's a few things in life that I observe people want to believe in and they want to believe in them against the odds. So one of those things is democracy. People want to believe in democracy. So when you voted Trump, and then for four years, they made it impossible for Trump to govern in the free way that he would have. And then we voted for Brexit. And for four years, we weren't allowed to have the Brexit we voted for. You saw more than ever, people wanted to believe that their vote mattered and that their vote counted. And never has that been more true than in America today. People want to believe democracy is real. And the same with the law. People want to believe the law is the law. And what's horrific is when we see the law distorted for political effect. And when I think about January the 6th and some of the charges placed at the door of perfectly innocent Americans because the law demanded they be punished, um, that's when it's heartbreaking, when you realize the law is not the law, it's just another tool of a political administration. Now, Katie, um, I talk about Britain often, and I really, I, I'm a, I guess I'm an, I'm an Anglophile. My maiden name is Duckworth, just for the record. <laughs> it's a great name. <laughs> yeah, so a uh, very British, but, and Wilson, uh, Duckworth and Wilson, my mother's name. So, um, that's not important. I, I mean, that's not the reason, but I, I do, I feel very connected to Britain, and I care what goes on there. Uh, but I don't fly to Britain and get involved in their political scene. I talk about it here. What in the world motivates you to mm. care so much? about this country, that you come this often and you actually have made a big difference. I think you've made a real mark in this country with your oh. uh, passionate advocacy for freedom and uh, proper immigration well, and all that. thank you. That was really kind. But I think um, 
I think there's two sides. One is I always um, remember, or if I'm not remembering enough, I have a word with myself, which is that I am a foreigner and an outsider. And I remember that first of all, um, not only because you've chased our little British behinds out of here <laughs> twice before, um, and therefore I must be respectful. Oh, my goodness. I was at an event the other day, and a guy, I'm telling you, out of nowhere, came over to me and he went, we took your tea and we threw it in the sea. And he spun on his heel and he left. And I was like, okay, that was a pretty weird moment. But like, I'm just here well, being... Well, thank you for the reminder. I'm like, I'm here being nice to everybody. Like, I'm just being a nice... But anyway, so so it's remembering that I'm a foreigner and an outsider. And I, I truly am. But then also remembering that that gives me some advantages in terms of perspective. Yep. And ultimately, my country is in such a dark place it just in the macro sense you know demographically we're outnumbered we're not allowed to fly our british flag anymore because it's seen as a racist symbol church attendance has dropped you know um 50 in the last 40 years so and i don't want to focus on the on the darkness but what i mean is it's why it's so imperative that america remains strong so your fight is my fight is our fight you are our hope too. And, and I say that not in, um, in a way to apply pressure or in any way to say, oh, by the way, guys, we're relying on you as well. But, but that is the truth of it is that when we look to light, and, and I think, um, you know, I'm going to speak later in the week at the villages in Florida. Florida in particular is one of those places that's like a beacon of light on a hill and and that's how they used to communicate hope or good news in the old days right they used to light a beacon on a hill and that's how i see florida now is you are the beacon on the hill for the free world and it's about coming over helping encourage our side cheer us on and be a kind of force for positivity and optimism as well there's a lot of laughter at my events and i think it's something people need at the moment people need healing I think that's true. And I also think that um, Americans don't really fully realize we're so insulated I really and, and pr provincial. Uh, we think about America, and most Americans don't think about anything beyond America, with, very, with some exceptions. Um, but it is true that the world looks at us. We are, we are a hope. When, when Ronald Reagan say, said we were a shining light on the hill, he wasn't kidding. And I, I, one of the first times that ever struck me, uh, Katie, I was at, uh, President of, of Concerned Women for America in DC. And I went to Ottawa to speak. Um, it was a pro-life rally. And, um, I remember people coming up to me after I spoke and talking about how much hope. This is a long time ago. This is when, uh, George Bush was president. And they were saying how much hope America gave them. The Canadians were looking to us. And I was that Canadians hated us. They resented us. They didn't like us. But this is what I heard. And I realized, oh, my goodness, the world is watching us. That's and we give them courage. We give them encouragement. So that exactly that explains that. why you're here. And, and also, that exactly what you just said. I thought Canadians hated us. Or I thought, <laughs> it, but, but exactly that. I, I fear all the time. You know, it breaks my heart in a thousand pieces that we have this ridiculous little Muslim mayor of London and and, and he was, uh, I would say, abusive about Donald Trump and it's as if the British don't like the Americans or we disrespected your president and, and that's many, of course, there's a, a good number of people who are the Californians or the New Yorkers or the whomevers uh, in my country too, but like a good 20 million British people love this country, are looking to this country. And more than that, we are 
we are willing you onwards. You know, we, if we could send spirit and spine, that's what we're trying to do. And, and that's what I try and just bring in person, this weird sort of old lady schlepping around with my suitcase, I'm rallying the troops. I'm not quite yet. No, no but you I know, know what I mean. I, <laughs> I think it's an overstatement just because she's beautiful. <laughs> it's just not an old lady, by the way. <laughs> Katie, um, tell, let's be specific just for a second yes. before we go to the rest of the conversation. You're going to speak in the Villages, Florida. When are you going to speak there? Yes, so it's the big DeSantis dinner. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, Villages for Trump on the 9th of May. Of May, okay. So I get to be his, I think I was going to be warm up and cool down. I think I'm his cool down act. <laughs> so he's coming in to address um, 500 people or so yeah. um, for the dinner. And then I get to pick up after Governor Ron DeSantis oh, and that. keep the keep the room going. Which, to be fair, yeah. as as warm up acts go, getting Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, <laughs> there's there's a dream right there. There's a dream ticket. Does his stuff make its way to Britain? I mean, do, are, is it just because you follow American news, or do, does he break through in the news cycle there? Yeah, two sides to that. One, a hundred percent, because I'm a, basically a Ron stalker. Like I call him Ron. I chat to him when I'm having my breakfast in my head. Like he's become I'm part of very much my life and he probably will need some kind of restraining order against me if I ever do get to meet him in person. But I think in the UK, he's probably held up, you know, the way, the way in which the media, well, we both know, but the media always needs a monster. And at times, of course, that was me. I've been the monster. I'm sure you've had your fair share. Ron is very much Governor DeSantis, sorry. First name terms, uh, in my head. Uh, Governor DeSantis is held up as, you know, the monster. It's like a caricature. In of, Britain, in the British press. Yes, but, but only funny. loosely because people don't really know who they are, he is. They don't really understand the governor of Florida. They don't, yeah, that, right. but they, they get that there's this guy who, you know, let's pretend we run with the headlines. Don't say gay. Oh, he must be a bad guy. Oh, you know, yeah. this, this caricature yes, of yes. monsters. Yes, they do do that, don't they? I think yeah. they raid Saul Alinsky. Target and make it personal. <laughs> they did that. They do that really well. All right. My guest is Katie Hopkins. And of course, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Britain in a minute because I'm really ca- curious. Katie, it seems like Britain to me in my sphere has gone quiet, maybe because we've had so much news. And I, I would really like to know what's happening there in the aftermath of COVID. Uh, also the economy and gas prices and the influx of Islam. You already mentioned you're a mayor and we need to talk about that too. So Please stay tuned. This is Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. It's been a tough time for independent shops like this one over the past few years. Forced to close during the pandemic... Brexit and now the cost of living is causing running costs to soar. People have less disposable income to spend in gift shops like this one in Aberdeen. They struggled but are determined to survive. It feels like we've just gone from sort of one lifetime event into another, into another, into another. Sometimes you think, God, you know, can I dig any deeper? Can I turn this around again? But ultimately, we don't have a choice. You know, we're committed to our shops, we're committed to our buildings. You know, we have to make it work. We're a a family business, there isn't any other income coming into our household apart from what you know we, we generate in the shop, so that's pretty motivating. Um, you know, we've got the same bills to pay as everybody else. With everywhere shut during lockdown, socialising disappeared, and with it, the need to wear the latest trends. One well, most difficult period we've ever, ever had. 
price hikes of everything like you know electricity gas you know fuel so footfall is really down at the moment you know customers again you know they, i think they're prioritizing what they want to spend their money on two years of restrictions was bad enough for business survival but now the highest level of inflation in over 30 years supply chain issues and the cost of living crisis are creating the perfect storm for independent retail it's feared that as people become more careful with their spending it could lead to more boarded up shops on our high streets all right, that was Scottish uh, news. And as you know, Scotland is part of Great Britain. Uh, and Katie Hopkins is my guest. By the way, Katie, uh, she has a long resume, and I didn't give enough of it. But she is a trained economist, and she graduated from the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. She's highly educated, and she knows a lot about uh, stuff like what we're going to talk about, especially the economy. So, Katie, I've wondered the last time we talked to you, you know, you told me Britain was really struggling under the COVID restrictions. Uh, so, and the so let's talk about that. In the aftermath of that, you went through the same thing with shops closing and people struggling. So what what's life in Britain now, like now? Yeah, and it's been so rough. And I know that this is a parallel with America. So a lot of people, your listeners will be saying, well, tell us about it. You know, same. And that's exactly it. It is same. So those two years of lockdown and the heartbreak of people being separated from their elderly or care homes, shutting up their doors and not allowing their elderly to be visited by relatives Terrible. i mean it Terrible. was it was the it was the heartbreak of some of that stuff to you know people with dementia just rapidly going downhill because they didn't have that human contact so i think it's always the human story of the thing that that hits you first and people used to you know i do my shows online and i I would have conversations all the time. I make sure I put stuff up every day to try and keep people motivated. But people would be in touch saying, I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know what the point is. People were making more of a rational decision about not wanting to continue with life because if this is going to be life now, I don't think I want to live it. Um, so, so very dark and big conversations. And as we came out of lockdown, there was this idea of hope and there were moments of uplift, like a World Cup. And I remember the Scottish fans, they were told they weren't allowed to come to support their team in London, but they came anyway. Oh, did they really? And when Scottish people, <laughs> Scottish football supporters, many people would not necessarily approve of their behaviour. But I found it to be glorious, these, you know, forgive me, but naked Scottish men drinking in fountains, <laughs> just in the sunshine. And just breaking the, the yeah. silly rules. Breaking yeah. every single rule mm. there was. Mm. And normally in real life, you might say that was annoying. But in this one moment, it felt glorious in every regard. And I, I just loved them. But we went very quickly from that, that brief glimpse of sort of some sort of hope that we all have. And in this, for people again now, just as that lady was saying, we just don't know if we can pick ourselves up again. Because and just to give it at a very, very sort of granular level, if people's energy bills that used to land on their doormat or come through their post box were maybe $35, let's just say a notional figure a month, those have now gone up five times. So people are looking at these $150, $200 a month bills for their energy, but they don't have that additional five times income to cover that. People are looking at their everyday bills just to put their cooker on or heat their home, or, and bear in mind it's freezing in the UK a lot and very grey. They cannot work out how they're even going to start to pay their energy bill, and that's before everything else. Um, if I talk about our family car, our family car isn't an American-sized car, and I mean that respectfully. It's quite a small car. When we go to fill that up now, that's 
um, about £120 to fill up our vehicle. So that's $180 to fill up our car. $180. $180. Just to put fuel in, in your little car. In our car, yeah. And it's not, it's not massive. It's and not electric. No, uh, no. no it's, so just a, it's just you've got to go fill it up. So people are saying they probably won't be able to do the school run or they can't get to work because they can't. So, and people are remote. Not everybody, as we know, is on a bus or a train line. So it's just that constant pressure of the squeeze on the poorest and and the middle income. This isn't just about the people who couldn't make it before. This is people who thought they were okay and now are not. And and so the darkness is there. And then if I add to it, it's the layer of this this bizarre shift happened in humanity where so many people and Americans will recognize this, almost miss lockdown regulations. They almost miss the time when the state had complete control. We had a scheme called furlough, where you stayed at home but were paid by the government anyway. People miss that. And I think you see signs of it with people still wearing their masks alone in their cars when they don't need to or, or whatever. People miss that sense of the, the state taking responsibility for them. And you certainly see how this is going to go in the sense that a generation now will never own a home. A generation may well lose their homes because they can't afford and therefore the idea of being moved into centralized government accommodation above public transport feels very achievable for a government just about right now. Well, I, we're not quite. No. Uh, some areas of our country probably are where you just described, but we, because we can't survive without transportation. You know, we don't have the public transportation that you guys have in England yet. I'm sure they're going to do that for us, you know. But, um, and it's interesting, Katie, isn't it, that I think people thrive when there are boundaries and laws. That We talked about that a little bit earlier. We thrive when there is a clear understanding of right and wrong. But the flip side is true also, that when those laws and rules become crazy, it just really creates craziness because you need boundaries so you know where you are, but the boundaries that they create are inhumane. Yes, and, it, and it's like you need laws and, and boundaries in order to have order, but also to drive people to take uh, risk and take accountability for risk and to be driven with sort of confidence and maybe excitement and some adrenaline when you're taking a high level of risk. And I don't mean that in a crazy sense. I just mean that in the sense of, you know, starting a business. No, that's Americans a, understand what you just said. Exactly. It's, that's yes. a big risk, you know, deciding to invest in adventure. That's a massive risk, but you're taking all ownership of that risk and right. it's the adrenaline that will see you through right. or determine it. And it makes you work so hard to make it work. Right. You take yeah. away that. You now impose law and order and rules that are at a level where you have no freedom to take risk. And suddenly you lose that confidence. You lose the motivators. You are penalized if you're a risk taker. And it changes almost the makeup of these people and people who were inclined to risk aversion in an earlier setting, are now sort of wedded to risk aversion. Their risk aversion has made, it, made them fearful to even leave their door. And I think one of the interesting things to observe as I travel around, I say interesting in a, in a darker sense, but like in San Diego, during lockdown, inexplicably, these huge high-rise towers have been built on top of the public transport intersections. So if you go to the Amtrak station, these huge, huge buildings have gone up for accommodations. And if you're in Arizona and you're in Phoenix and you take some time and just look up, 
look at where these places are being built. They're all being built on top of these public transport networks. And I believe in the UK, and we, we should probably mark this date, um, but uh, that within five years in the UK, we will not be allowed to own a private vehicle. So within five years from now, probably sooner, an ordinary British person will not be allowed to have the right to own a car. We will lose that right. I think we're headed the same direction, but the, the way they'll do it is going to be different here. Yes. We uh, already, the companies, uh, the major companies are producing, are going to electric. Yes. So that we will have no choice. But the problem is when you buy electric and you get out on American highways, you can't go anywhere. And if you have car trouble, there's no one to help you. And there aren't enough charging stations, and there will never be enough charging stations, and there will never be enough energy through those batteries to power all the cars that are necessary to run America. So we will be without cars also, but because it's just not possible. Exactly. So once you go electric, and, and we've got, we're already down this route, and then who controls electric? And exactly. of course, ultimately, it isn't the individual. You've taken away the freedom of individual choice because you no longer fuel your own car effectively because someone else controls the supply. And when that becomes regulated, or perhaps you earn electric credits in exchange for social credits elsewhere, or you are given two hours of electric credit a month as part of your allocation, you see where we're headed. Yes. And we already have pilot schemes in the UK, which of course will come here, where it's a transaction. If you hand over your private car to the government, you'll get given some credits to use. Oh, on the, and people are willingly oh, doing this. That's like people when... People are handing over their cars in exchange for credits now. Uh, you know what? That will happen. I've not heard of... This is the first I've heard of this. This reminds me of them buying back guns. Yes. Same but different in Which Australia. Which is buyback. Disarmed all of Australia. Yeah. It's not and a buyback because they didn't buy them in the first place. It's a phrase, buyback, right? Yeah, it's yes, the, it's exactly. It's the trick, trickery of the light. Yeah. Yeah. Last time we spoke, I remember you said, I believe it was they were restricting where you lived, people from driving more than eight miles out of their home. Yes. Is that still in place? Uh, that's not in place, but for, for that long period, it was, um, yeah, about 8K, so five miles from our home address. We weren't allowed further than that, and you weren't allowed to be more than one person in the vehicle. That had a very, and that was the same in Australia. So um, Australia had that same travel restriction, and I believe... Um, and there's much uh, written about this, that uh, that was done as a reinforcing behavior to set the idea that in a time to come, there will be a radius that you're allowed to operate in from your government-provided accommodations. And outside of that restricted radius, you would need special permission or special credits. So it's about zoning us for a future time when we only can operate within a certain field. I should say before I forget it, uh, Stanley Kurtz, who's an intellectual writer here, has written a great deal about uh, this plan to move everybody to central uh, urban areas and to do exactly what you just described, have these apartments where you live on top of each other and you're close to the, their, to the government transportation hubs. And that's what they want, everyone to live in these, because they control, can control you if you don't live in the country with your cows and your horses, whatever it is you do, and have your SUV. It's better if, to not be able to have that and to be able to have to move into an urban center and do their bidding. It's really insidious, and it is a plan. It is a plan, and, it, and it's written down. You know, yes. um, you can read this for yourself. Uh, in World Economic Forum settings, this is the plan, this is the move. You'll have nothing and you'll be happy, right? And we just become oh. kind of data, these these huge 
sort of residential buildings become almost like almost like servers on a computer. We just become data and we are mined for our data and that is our use and our only use. Um, and it, it's just a very curious thing to be, uh, as you are, part of maybe slightly front-facing, trying to articulate some of this journey that we're all on, that we didn't ask to be on, <laughs> without sounding like a complete madwoman. It is hard to, and you have to choose your audience and you have to choose your messaging and you have to choose when you go where and how far down the rabbit hole you go because it's so easy just to sound like you are absolutely crazy. I think that that has been true. I find it less of a problem now. I think that most Americans, because they, you know, they're kind of, they cut their teeth on freedom and self-reliance, <laughs> excuse me, and ambition and hard work and all of those things, and they they maybe see more clearly because they haven't had a generation of they've been so they've been in that socialism track which is now where we are with our young people they do, they don't uh, they it's harder to explain it to them I think like, so. and I and I think is a you know the the positive and the uplift for me and the the reason I throw myself on the road relentlessly is because you're different than us. You know, I spend a lot of time in South Africa, just been deported from Australia uh, for speaking out over there. And, and, and it, Americans are still different to the rest of the world. And that is a, an amazing and a, and a brilliant and a beautiful thing. And watching Americans every time Biden shakes the hand with thin air or says something else ridiculous, typically Republicans go out and buy more guns. And I find it incredibly <laughs> reassuring that probably at no time in modern history has there been a greater cache of weapons That's across true. America than right now. That's actually very true. And it sets you apart. <clears throat> it is true. And in a kind of no-nonsense, I always think, when I think of American humor now, when we watch this stuff happening, it reminds me of the old Russian humor during the communist regime. You know, the Russians had Pravda was hilarious. I mean, they would have these dark humor kind of stories. And I kind of think this is where we are. We're yeah. kind of like finding the humor in this horrible stuff. Yes. And we're not giving up the fight. That's yeah. for sure. Which, which brings me to another question. Hello, there's the music. Well, this is the question and we'll talk about it on the other side. Um, I think that it has, uh, I don't know that I can't quote a stat. But it has kind of gotten down into the DNA of many, 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 many Americans, substantial amounts, that the whole COVID thing was a sham, uh, that the restrictions were a sham, that the vaccines actually do not protect, and all of that. And I'm just curious, I would be curious on the other side of the break to see if any of that, uh, the truth speakers on this side of the globe, have been able to penetrate uh, the British mind and that, if that's had, and maybe Australia too, since you just were there. All right, my guest is Katie Hopkins. And how much fun this is in spite of the topic. It's nice for me to have someone to talk to in the studio. I, I love it. So thanks for joining me, Katie. All right, we'll be right back right after this. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. This is Ukraine's finest hour that will be remembered and recounted for generations to come. Your children and your grandchildren will say that Ukrainians taught the world that the brute force of an aggressor counts for nothing against the moral force of a people 
determined to be free. They will say that Ukrainians proved by their tenacity and sacrifice that guns and tanks cannot suppress a nation fighting for its independence. And that is why I believe and I know that Ukraine will win. All right, that's Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Great Britain. And the reason I'm playing that is because Katie Hopkins, who is very much from Great Britain, I know that you love your country, Katie, went to Sandhurst, uh, would have fought in the military if you had, didn't have some medical complications. And an economist, uh, all over British media before they started, you started talking about Islam and the immigration that was very disturbing. Uh, but tremendous talent and intellect. And so it's just a privilege to have oh, you in the studio. It's lovely to be back here. Let me, all right, so I ask you, let's get to Ukraine in a second, but I ask you a question on the other side of the break, and that was, you know, we have pretty much, uh, we've had some real champions here, as you know, in the medical profession who have risked a great deal and given and, and paid a big price for speaking out against uh, the lack of science uh, on which COVID restrictions were based, the damage that it has done, uh, the dangers of the vaccinations, the the, the death, the, the wrong medical uh, treatment, just all of it. And I think... Um, a lot of America, a significant amount of Americans understand that. Is that the case in Britain? No. I completely agree with you that a significant amount of Americans have made that shift. And even if they haven't, there's a number of Americans who probably had all the vaccines, all the boosters, and feel a sense of unease that it wasn't as useful as they were led to have believed and then even some people probably who are holding on to the idea that what they did was right because it's just more comfortable to believe that if you were duped it's better not to know that you were duped you just prefer to live with the lie and I see all those different sorts of behaviors in the UK there's a fundamental difference and it's like fundamental in the way that um, you know it's fundamental to Americans and their freedom to have their second amendment we have the disaster of socialized health care. And it's the reason the Democrats are so desperate to stick socialized health care into America. Because when you have socialized health care, at a very basic human sort of mother to child level, the health care for your child is dependent on you being able to access health care, which is dependent on you kind of being polite or liked by the system. So if our socialized healthcare dictated that there is COVID, you're all going to die, you must stay home, we mustn't come in here, you must stay, just die quietly in your homes, people are typically inclined to say, oh yes, we'll do what we're told. Because we had a situation in the UK where we were told at eight o'clock on a Thursday, and I'm not making this up in any regard, I'm going to sound crazy, at eight o'clock on a Thursday night, People were told to stand on their doorsteps and clap at the sky in support of our socialised healthcare. And this happened throughout the whole of Great Britain. Eight o'clock, people stood on their doorsteps and they clapped at the sky in support of socialised healthcare. And then we had people coming out with their trombones to be a bit more flash or someone coming out and singing opera. And then we had people videoing people clapping at the sky and the sky clapping became a real thing. And then what happened as people got sick of lockdowns or started to question them or some people realized that this wasn't quite as it should be or their father who needed cancer treatment couldn't get the cancer treatment because you weren't allowed to use the NHS, people stopped turning up for sky clapping. And then what happened was people started saying, well, Amy at number 34 didn't turn out for sky clapping. 
She shouldn't be allowed to access the NHS if she gets sick. I hope that if her child gets sick, no one comes to treat it. That happened, and that's the way the government reinforced belief in the illusion of COVID and the vaccine and the lockdown was by getting other people to police your access to healthcare. And that's why socialized healthcare is actually the weapon, the ultimate weapon for the left. And that's why they want it here, because then your politics is your medical health. And if you want to live, you better believe in what they're saying. I think what you said is absolutely true. I, I know it's true. And healthcare is so very personal. There's nothing more frightening than uh, not having good care or getting the wrong medication or uh, whatever might happen to you. That is the, the most personal thing, more than losing your job, more than or your children's uh, uh, care, medical care. So that is the nerve. That's the vulnerability that, that where they can, as you said, ultimately control you. I remember years ago, when my, my, I had a very sick daughter, my first child, and uh, I remember n more than once in her lifetime uh, going through a weekend where I was just at, beside myself with worry because she was having seizures and so sick. And at 8 o'clock on Monday morning was when I could call the doctor. And um, it was just such a blessing to have them pick up and get me right in to see. But if I got put on hold or if I got someone from another country who couldn't speak English or if they said they'd get back to me, they could see me next Monday, which is more typical of socialized medicine, you know, um, I just thought about how I wouldn't be able to stand that. That would just, I would just, I would go crazy in that kind of a system. But um, anyway, um, it's all about control. It sounds like George Orwell very much, what yeah. you just described. And, and so for the British or eight, people, 1984, I should say. We haven't evolved into that uh, sort of wide um, awakening to the lie and the deception. People are much preferring to live in the, live being duped and live in the lie than they are to risk adventuring out and seeing that it was all done to them. Yeah. But How about course, you, Katie, in your own circles with the people that you know? Do you have any allies? I know when we went through the COVID uh, shutdown here, I had close friends. Honestly, I would have gone crazy if I hadn't had them because we saw the world differently than everyone else. It was like, what? This is like, this is madness. And we would comfort each other in uh, with sanity. <laughs> with mutual sanity. Do you have any people that do that with you? <laughs> you know what? I think it's actually one of the reasons, and I think it's the same with the frontline doctors too, um, though clearly they have an amazing cause and a reason. But I also believe the reason the frontline doctors, Dr. Simone and the others, happened was because they couldn't find that same level of deserving for their skills within their profession because they were being ousted, they had to go to the great American people to share their beliefs because in that way they were able to help people because those people realized. And it's very, so for me, I am so uplifted when I'm with our groups, our people, groups, ordinary people from across America because they so get it. They so understand and it feels like I've come home. With, yes, with yeah. the guy from CVS or the guy who runs the fuel <laughs> place over down the road. We're at home together because we get it. But honestly, with some of your closest family and your closest friends, people know this story. You look at them and you cannot believe. And that was often the hardest thing was that people that you thought were you were really, really close to were way down that dark route of believing everything they were being told, trying to push it on others. And in fact, telling people, no, you can't come to the 
funeral or wedding or dinner because you're not vaccinated, and they still keep that up to this day. Or you can't see the grandchildren because that, they're forever in perpetuity. That's not a big deal. And, uh, you know, just yeah. like that's reasonable. Yeah, I think it's reasonable. And that's a lot of what reasonable. I get. We, we go around and, I, you know, doing these events and we laugh and we laugh and we laugh. But so often afterwards, talking individually, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, with ladies particularly, there's so many tears mm -hmm. because I, I touch on this idea of, you know, grand, uh, of children holding grandchildren hostage effectively by saying you're not going to see them until you're vaccinated. And these ladies are carrying around like a, a well of sadness behind their eyes. And, and it's almost like we all need to let some of that go. And that's one of the other things I think we're doing. That's part of what you're doing. That's what, why these conversations, having conversations with people is so helpful, not because we have to agree, just to be able to start to offload what was done to us in the last couple of years and prepare ourselves because we do need to prepare ourselves for the fight ahead. And I guess at a very personal level, I was known for the longest time in my country as a, a sort of monster, the biggest whatever in Britain, you know, not very nice word. Um, and I was seen as the enemy for a long time. It's why I can speak to the monster thing um, quite fluently because it was me for the longest time. And, and a really strange thing happened to me with COVID was that whilst I had to walk away from a number of personal family and friends in order that I didn't um, have proper conflicts with them because we were so far apart on what we believed, but actually, my kind of, um, I don't know if it's reputation or whatever, did a bit of a 180 in the UK. So I went from being this wow. horrible monster, she's a terrible person, she speaks out about things she shouldn't, she's terrible, to people going, actually, you know what, she's just speaking the truth on COVID and she's keeping me going and and she's helping me get through this. And, and it's been a 180 for me. So it turns out when I go back from being here, or later in the villages, um, when I go back to the UK, I have my first event in the UK for five years. Oh, wow. My first time on a stage because an audience grew over COVID that needed someone. I turned out to be that someone. And so I'm going to be on Blackpool Pier with 2,500 people. Um, and the first night sold out. So they added two more and they sold out as well. So I just got COVID uncancelled me. That's your friend. I just, that, that just, makes me so happy and I, I just I, I would be remiss if I didn't say um, one of the reasons that Americans are different is because of our faith it's not every universally true but there is a huge amount of America that really genuinely believes in God and they are unafraid and they believe in truth and they hold fast to it because the God they serve is the God of all truth and when you say that you have always had a passion for truth so you are close to his heart when you speak the truth, you are precious to him. And I think I'm not surprised that he has, this is a long time you've been in the desert. You had such a career. And then because of your truth speaking, relentless truth speaking, you paid a huge price. So I think this is a gift. I think this is a gift, a kiss from God for you. I think that's a beautiful thing. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's emotional because um, I'm emotionally uh, scared. I never use the word scared because I, I say I'm not scared of anything, but I'm scared of stepping out on that stage because I'm, I'm, I'm not used to it. I'm not used to being allowed to speak in my own country. I've not been allowed to speak in my country for five years, and that audience will be full of our people, ordinary people. Um, and um, I don't quite know how I'm going to process that because it's such a huge idea. Well, I just would say that it's in you to do that because you 
You just, I just don't think you, Katie, could do anything but speak the truth. And that will resonate with the right people. With the wrong people, they'll always be our enemy. It's not going to go away. We'll never be able to please them. We won't be able to back up or backtrack enough to please them. There will always be punishment. And what is that? There's a quote. I wish I knew what it was. It's something about the, sometimes the most radical action uh, is to speak the truth. That oh, yes. makes you the most radical, whatever that beautiful <laughs> quote <laughs> is. Like, <laughs> I should know it. Act of revolutionary something is to speak the truth, I think is what it was. So that's, and that's why you were so uh, annoying uh, because truth telling, it can't, is just like, I always think it's like put, shining a light in the corner where there are cockroaches and they all run and they can't stand the light. It drives them crazy. And that's what we're in the business of doing. It will always be offensive to the wrong people, hmm. but to the right people, they will hear it and it will resonate with them and it has power. And that's another reason why they have to shut us up because it does have power. All right. So, um, oh, okay. We only have just a few minutes left. So I even hesitate to ask you this, but I should, I do. I'm curious to know what you think about Ukraine. Can you possibly sh in a short time sort of say, and it, you can be politically incorrect, go for it. Okay. So re respecting short amount of time, I don't buy in um, to the agenda that we're being solved. Uh, sold rather and I've never really been one for good guy bad guy and this idea that Putin is the worst guy ever and that Zelensky Ukraine are the good guys and that's the simple truth of it um, I don't buy into it I don't buy into um, the idea that Ukraine is the one that uh, has to be in the right always I don't trust that Zelensky uh, is the leader that people say he is. He's a billionaire, and I've seen him dancing in rubber suits. Um, I've spent time in Russia, and Putin's Russia is a great place, and it feels much more like the Christian land that I was born into as well. And I think if there's one thing that this war is about, it's certainly not about saving Ukraine. I think it's much more about the destruction of Russia. And I'm sorry that £33 billion of Americans' money is being used to fund it. Yes. Well, I actually agree with you, uh, Katie. I don't have time to give a full response, full-throated response. But uh, I, I think this, Ukraine has enough dark stuff itself. It's You can't really separate the corruption between Ukraine and Russia. And uh, my understanding is Putin would not play the global game, and so he must be destroyed. That's the way I see it, too. Isn't that interesting? All right, well, see, there you go. That's something to talk about over lunch. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.